Tonight we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Hear now the word of the living God. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is the word of the living God, and we say, thanks be to God. Amen. Please be seated. Let us pray and ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. Lord, we do pray now that by your spirit, you would bless the preaching of the word and that you would bless ears to hear. Help us that the preaching of the word of Christ would be the word of Christ to his covenant people. Lord, we pray for conviction and guidance and comfort and gospel grace. And in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Over the last few years, we as a church have regularly mentioned and specifically thanked God for unity. We've regularly thanked the Lord that particularly over these last few years, we as a church have been unified. In fact, interestingly enough, over these last few months, many other church elders have reached out to us to say, hey, this Lord's Day, we're going to be praying for your church. How can we pray for you? Give us a list. This happened to me just this week. It's a good note to remind us that people are praying for us. But one of the things that I regularly encourage people to pray for, and even this week typed in an email that would be listed for the Lord in prayer on our behalf, is thanking God for the unity that exists in our midst. When many churches over the last few years were quite disunified over how to handle closures and masks and other such things, when other churches have been hit with theology or various kinds of issues that thought that sought to disunify the body. We as a church, by God's grace and God's grace alone, have been able to be unified. And so we regularly pray for this. But a question for us tonight from Philippians chapter two is, in addition to praying about unity and thanking God for it, what does the scripture say in terms of our role or task in pursuing it? We're right to thank the Lord that he's given it to us. And we're right to ask the Lord that it continue. But does the scripture say anything about how we as Christ's people ought to pursue it, to work for it, to strive for unity? In the book of Philippians, among other things, Paul answers that question. Our text begins in chapter two, verse one, with the word, therefore, which, of course, connects us, doesn't it, to the previous verses. In fact, Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2 point back, or rest rather, on what's come before. Notice just a few verses before our text this evening. Paul 
has that famous passage where he says, essentially, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he says, picking up in verse 25, and being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. And then he says, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, comfort in love, fellowship of the spirit, affection and mercy, be unified. Before we look at our particular text, notice the connections What does that therefore of chapter 2 verse 1 point to? Well, it points to the fact that Christ's people are striving together in the gospel. We are a people who are striving together in the gospel. We're resting on Christ and what he has done. We just sang of that. I love that lyric that says, When through grace in Christ our trust is... Justice smiles and asks no more. Are you looking to Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins? Have you come to understand that Christ died for sins? That he was buried, that he was raised. On the third day he was raised victorious. Well, this is the gospel. It is what Christ has done. And Christians are striving together for the faith of the gospel. But also notice in these verses before our text, Paul mentions that there is a common suffering. It has been granted to you, Christian, to believe in the gospel, but also to suffer. That's our theme from this morning, isn't it? We are striving together for the faith of the gospel. We have a common suffering. But notice he also says we have common enemies. Notice what he says, that we might not be, that you, church at Philippi, might not be in any way terrified by your adversaries. There are a lot of common realities about Christians, out of which Paul can then say, chapter 2, verse 1, therefore. Therefore. Before the discussion of unity is even brought up. The commonalities of Christians is discussed. I want us to see four things from our text this evening, keeping in mind the context. You will remember, boys and girls, that when Paul wrote the letter to the church at Philippi, when he wrote the book of Philippians, he didn't list chapters and verses. This is just one long letter, and we're jumping in, a few paragraphs in. So we've got to think to ourselves, what has come before our text where Paul tells Christians... Be unified. Well, striving together in the gospel. Common suffering. Common enemies. Therefore, he says, 
If there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. The first thing that we see in our text tonight is the foundation of unity, the foundation of unity. And specifically, there are four things that Paul lists in verse one, doesn't he? Consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the spirit and affection and mercy. Four foundational realities for unity. Let's look at these briefly. If we're looking at the foundation for the unity of Christ's people, for the unity of the church, Paul says, if there is any consolation. Now, that word there, if we could almost interpret as since. Since there is consolation in Christ when we suffer, when we have common enemies, when we're striving together for the faith of the gospel, since there is consolation in Christ, we can be like minded. What does consolation in Christ mean? Well, it could be translated encouragement in Christ. Really, the chief foundation for the unity of Christ's people, for the unity of every church, is the encouragement that we have in and from Christ. We don't forge unity on our own foundation. Rather, there is consolation in Christ. When we suffer, when we face these enemies, when we see our sin and our need for Christ again and again and again, Since there is consolation in Christ, Paul can say, be like-minded. But he also says comfort of love. I think this is pretty clear, but just to mention it, there is comfort of love among Christ's people. You were loved when you were not deserving of it. Christ loved you. He gave himself up for you, Galatians 2.20. And then he calls other believers, your brothers and sisters, and he calls other believers to love you. Of course, the only one in the whole bunch that loves perfectly is Christ. But we are called to love one another. There is, as a foundation for unity, consolation in Christ and comfort of love. How many of us have traveled the world and been to various churches And of course, sometimes churches will let us down. Sometimes perhaps we go into certain churches carrying our own baggage. And so one visit, we might be dealing with life issues. But usually among Christ's people, is there not a quick recognition that we are family in Christ and there is comfort of love among the people? But thirdly, He says a phrase, fellowship of the spirit. Do you know that you, Christian, have the same spirit indwelling you that the Christian on your right or left does? We have not been given a variety of spirits. There is but one Holy Spirit. And we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the same spirit, the spirit of Christ. You remember when Jesus gathers with his disciples and he's telling them that he is going to go. And he tells them, it is good for you that I go. So that the helper, 
the Spirit, boys and girls, the Holy Spirit, may come. And He will lead you into My words. We have the fellowship of the Spirit. But lastly, there is, Paul says, affection and mercy. These are to mark the body of Christ. It is very easy to, if you're looking for it, find where it's lacking. In fact, it seems that one of the things that has plagued the church of Christ down through the ages is not only a lack of affection and mercy, but also those who are regularly looking for a lack of affection and mercy among the body of Christ. Paul can say, therefore, or since, there is consolation in Christ, comfort of love, Fellowship of the Spirit. Think about that. You have, I have, together we have fellowship with the eternal Spirit of God. And in addition to this, affection and mercy. He says, if there are any of these things, and again, Paul is not speculating here. He's not saying, boy, it would be great if these things were true. Now, again, since these things are a reality, verse 2, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. So there's the foundation of unity, but secondly, there's the call to unity. Now, Paul expresses this call in personal terms. Notice what he says in verse 2. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So, it sounds almost personal. Paul is asking the church at Philippi, hey, would you do this for me? Would you make my joy complete? Would you fill, fulfill my joy by being unified? But really, this is the word of God to all of Christ's people. This becomes a command for every church of every age, not simply to fulfill Paul's joy, but that we might see the call to unity. Paul uses some interesting phrases there, doesn't he? Like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. And then he finishes by saying the same phrase that he began with, of one mind. It's like bookends. The beginning and the end of the call to unity is that we have one mind. Now, This isn't meant to be interpreted as if every believer is going to think exactly the same way. Like-minded or having one mind is not that we always think the same thoughts. You just take two Christians. They will not always be thinking the same thoughts, much less a hundred or two hundred or thousands This is not every believer thinking in the exact same way, but every believer having the same focus of mind. We may have a variety of thoughts, but we are like-minded in our pursuit of the glory of God, the truth of the gospel, the love that we are to have for one another. There's a like-mindedness, even though there may be a variety of thoughts. Paul also says in the midst of that phrase, one accord. Literally, in the original language, that could be translated together sold. Together sold or of 
souls that are together. Now, we don't really speak that way in English, so our versions have rendered it in a variety of ways. Here, it's rendered of one accord. But the picture is the foundation of unity provides Paul with the ground to call people to unity. Now, the word unity is not mentioned. Rather, it's described in terms of like-mindedness, having the same love, being together, sold, being of one mind. So as we thank the Lord for unity and as I ask other churches to thank the Lord that he has kept our church in this season, in this day, unified, we can see in the text of Scripture the foundation of unity and the call to it. If there is a call of God through his word for a church to be unified, to be like-minded, to have the same love, to be together sold, and they are not, that is sin. So if there's a call to unity, Paul then gives thirdly the way to unity. And this is really our focus tonight. We're praying for it. We're thanking the Lord for it. But how do we continue to pursue it? Thirdly, then, in verse 3, Paul lays out one of several paths to unity. Look at verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Now, I don't know if you've read that verse in a while. But if you haven't, if it hadn't been a while, every time I read that verse, it just strikes me. Really, every Bible verse strikes us, doesn't it? But that verse just strikes me. Because it is so unnatural for us as sinful human beings. Specifically, the part about esteeming others better than ourselves. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each or each one esteem others better than himself. This is the way to unity. Again, Paul gives a few phrases, the method that we do nothing in selfish ambition. Interestingly enough, a Greek word is used there from which we get that phrase, selfish ambition. It was a word that was used originally in Aristotle's writings. And in his time, it meant greedy political gain or underhanded tactics. This does happen in the church of Jesus Christ, beloved. People are greedy for gain. They use underhanded tactics. And it's very possible to do those things in an environment that is supposed to be selfless. That is supposed to be an environment, a place where we are desiring the glory of Christ. It's a strong word. Or phrase. But Paul has to tell the church there, and every church needs to be reminded, that each individual increasingly asks the Lord, help me not to do anything from selfish ambition. Or greedy game. Underhanded trickery. That's a way to unity. That each one is prayerfully on guard against such a thing. 
Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. That's not lowliness of self-esteem. That's not self-hatred, but rather it is being constantly on guard against pride. Against having a puffed up you of self. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So we are to put off underhanded trickery, selfish ambition, but we're also to view others as more important than ourselves. We're to look not only, he says, for our, out for our own interests, but for the interests of others. This can be quite an ambitious call, a noticeable call, or this can be day by day, simple little things. How many individuals, true believers, have been hurt in churches, have left churches, have caused issues in churches because they viewed themselves as more important than others. Or because they attempted something in selfish ambition, the goal was not met, and they believed themselves to not be loved. The way to unity, beloved, is that you and that I do nothing out of selfish ambition, that we view others as more important than ourselves, that we don't just look out for us, but also for others. This is the way to unity. In his commentary on this passage, Moises Silva says this, quote, the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self-centeredness. Paul not only gives us the foundation of unity, the call to be unified, but he also gives us a way to pursue unity. There are tangible ways that we can do that. We don't naturally consider others as more important than ourselves. But perhaps regularly praying for the saints one by one throughout your days will bring them to mind, will cause you to love them and be concerned about their needs and interests increasingly. Perhaps regularly fighting the temptation to be frustrated with a personality difference of someone else in the body. Or perhaps regularly being okay if one direction is pursued for the glory of Christ rather than another. As if your own thoughts were the only thoughts and the only way to do it. Paul gives us the way to unity. You know, Paul is never satisfied with giving a command without pointing to Christ. And that's exactly what he did, does here in our text. Fourthly, he gives us an example to encourage unity. An example to encourage unity. There's the foundation. Consolation in Christ. Comfort of love. Fellowship of the Spirit. Affection and mercy. There's the call to do it. There's even the method or the way. But then, as Paul does time and time again, letter after letter, church after church, 
Let me point you to Christ. So notice what he does in verse 5 and following. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, we won't linger on every phrase of this passage, but Paul is giving an example, the chief example, to encourage unity. And think of this example, beloved. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. What mind? That the one who was and is God... Being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now, I have to tell you, I absolutely love the way that the New King James Version translates verse 7. There's a lot of discussion about this passage. Because some translations will render it emptied himself. Which is not a bad translation, but it does create a lot of confusion because there are a whole host of believers, good and godly believers, who somehow read that and they think part of the humility of Christ is that somehow he got rid of some of his divinity, some of his divine attributes. There were certain things that he used to be able to do as God that he could no longer do as God. Beloved, that's heresy. God... The one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, never changes. Christ didn't lose one iota of divinity. His humility was that he took on the form of a bondservant and became like one of us. Here it's helpful to see that the intent is the humility of Christ is the one with supreme value humbled himself, verse 8, and became obedient to the point of death. Now think about this example. You may think, I may think that I have differences with other Christians. But how different was the perfect Son of God from rebellious sinners? As different as it gets. Oh, he, he is fully and truly man. But think, never once failing, you and me, always failing. Always honoring the Father, you and me, never honoring the Father. Always seeking the glory of the triune God, you and me, never seeking the glory of the triune God. The person that you have the most differences with here in this life, the Christian that you have the most differences with in this life, you are far more like than Christ was like you. As the sinless one to the sinner. And yet, what did he do? He laid down his life. And this is the example that Paul uses. Have this mind within you. 
Have this mind within you. This is the example, the chief of all examples. Christ is given as an example for how to pursue unity. You see, without humility, unity is not possible. And so really, we can pray, Lord, continue to give your church glorious unity. Thank you for it. But really, the work of that is when you and I, as individuals, before the face of the living God, day in and day out, Lord, help me not to be proud. Help my face to not be puffed up. Help me not to swell with pride as I'm loving my brothers and sisters. Guard our church from my pride. What a prayer that is for every believer, for every preacher. Guard our church from my pride. Paul will say, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he lists the glorious work of Christ, humbling himself, making himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant. Boys and girls, you remember what Jesus did for his disciples right before he was arrested, right before he was crucified? He took a basin of water and a towel. And what did he do? Do you remember? He washed his servants' feet. Now, he's giving them a wonderful example. They are his servants. They are his disciples. He is the master. And yet, what does he do? He says, I have come to serve you. Now, ultimately, he's talking about serving them by dying for them. But here, the eternal Son of God, who with a word upholds all things, the Scripture says, by his power. Things exist like sun and moon and stars and planets and galaxies and your heartbeat. It exists because King Jesus says, be. It is this one who takes on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, humbles himself. Becoming obedient. And notice how far the obedience of Christ went. It goes to the point of death. Even the death of the cross, for 99.9% of us, our call to humility before the face of God and for the love of others won't take us to our actual physical death. So this is our example to encourage unity. Now, maybe you're here tonight and what struck you is that this eternal son of God went to the cross To fill in the gaps, he went to the cross to die and to take the punishment that sinners deserve. That's right. Each of us is born a sinner. And we have offenses against God who simply is pristine justice. And so God will punish each and every sin. But in the love of God, Christ Jesus came and he died on a cross. And as he died, God poured out The punishment and the condemnation and the wrath justly deserved by each of us onto Christ. And Christ bore it and he died. That was, after all, the promised payment for sin, death. But on the third day he rose. And to each who looked to him by faith alone, we are united to Christ. And his death becomes our death, a death of satisfaction And his righteous life becomes our life, a life 
that is able and fit to stand before God for all of eternity. So we are exhorted in the word to trust in Christ. Have you? But Paul is writing to a largely believing audience. He points them to Christ as an example. He gives them the foundation of unity, the call to unity, the way to unity, and an example to encourage unity. If there is any consolation in Christ, is there, beloved? Is there encouragement, comfort, consolation in Christ? Is there? He says, if any comfort of love, Is there any love among the saints? If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, is there any hope that Christ will put His Spirit in His people? That that Spirit will not only regenerate individual believers, but will bring about a glorious change and a work among His church. Is there any way that that could happen If there's any affection and mercy, is there any way that other people could ever look at me with eyes kind of like Christ? Yes. Since there is this consolation, since there is this fellowship, since there is this comfort of love and even affection and mercy, let us pursue unity. Let's do it. By forsaking selfish ambition and pride. But in lowliness of mind, which we have to forge through years of prayer day by day. In lowliness of mind, let us even consider that the people to my right and my left in this room are more important than me. And as we pursue this way, let us look to Christ constantly. Not only for our salvation, but for the example that he's given us. But he who is the most different from any other brother or sister in his utter, pristine sinlessness, he humbled himself. May we continue by God's grace to do it. You know, one of the glorious things about being the pastor of this particular church is that when I ask other churches, when elders or pastors say, hey, we're praying for your church publicly this week. And I say to them, hey, pray that our unity continues. I don't say that because we're in the midst of not being unified. I don't say that because we're falling apart. I don't say that because I have words of dozens of people in our church which tell me that underneath the surface, we're just not like-minded. I actually can say, Lord, thank you. Thank the living God on behalf of our church, friend, as you pray for us. Thank God that we're unified. But would you ask him, because we're prideful people like every other human being, would you ask him on our behalf that that would continue? So as other churches are praying for us, as other churches are pleading with God on our behalf that this unity which we have would continue, let us take up this encouragement from Philippians. Let us look to Christ and say, as prayers are being lifted on our behalf, let us also Follow the way to unity, looking unto Christ. Let's pray. Living God, we thank you that there are other churches praying 
for us. That one of the things that they're praying is that we can continue to be unified because you have granted that unity in our midst. And for that, we praise you. In a day when many churches are grumbling, when many churches are divided, we thank you that there continues to be a sweet spirit in this place. But Lord, help us not to neglect passages like this in our daily thinking, that we've got to continue by your grace and in your spirit to press into this call to unity. Resting in the foundation and the encouragement that we have in passages like this. Lord, what a blessing for our children to go to a church where they can see people loving each other. What a blessing to go to a church where we can sit at your table and hear your word and not regularly worry about arguments, confrontations and conflicts. But Lord, help us as we pray, thanking you for it. To press into it and to pursue it in biblical means for your grace, for your glory, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.